Uh, my name is Randy Boltinghouse, and I'm privileged to uh, be the lead minister here at the church, and um, um, so very, very happy to get to worship with uh, people that I love here uh, on this very first day of the week. Typically here at Windsor Road, we take our teaching time as a part of our worship service, and we just go through a book of the Bible, and we're going to be doing that this morning. And as you can see, we're going through the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn there. Um, Exodus chapter 1. You'll find that on page 45 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own and you would like a copy, uh, there's a, a, a Bible in, uh, right in the pouch in front of you. Uh, you may uh, uh, receive it as a gift from our church family. Put your name in it and uh, it's yours. We'd love to... Uh, love for you to have. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Um, so we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 1, and before I just get into our verses today, I want to just give you a quick overview. The book of Exodus, when you think of Exodus, think exit. It's about God exiting His people from a land of oppression and bondage. The book of Exodus tells of Israel's deliverance by God from Egypt. And this is what's interesting. After God delivers his people, he takes them to a mountain and introduces himself to them. So now that, I'm, now that I've delivered you, let me introduce myself to you. And he gives them his will, his law. And then he teaches them how to worship. So God rescues them, God gives them his will, his law, and then God teaches them how to worship. And that's really the book of Exodus. It's divided into three parts. Uh, Exodus chapters 1 through 18 is God the rescuer. Exodus 19 to 24, God the lawgiver. God gives Israel his law. And then Exodus 25 to 40, God gives the blueprints for the tabernacle. God the architect, rescuer, lawgiver, architect. This amazing book of Exodus, how the one true God delivered a nation of slaves so that they would no longer be slaves to sin, but they would be called children of God, and even more than that, priests mediating and representing his presence before the nations on earth. That's the book of Exodus. And today we begin with kind of an origins account. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 8 through 22, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go to work. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. But you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, Lord, open our eyes that we may see the wonderful things written in your word. Help me get out of the way so that what you once said gets said. No more, no less. For our good, for your glory, and for the supremacy of your Son, Jesus, who taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Does anybody need to be delivered today? We say that prayer a lot, don't we? It's a wonderful prayer that we can pray as a church family, but I was just wondering. Does anybody need to be delivered today? Huh. Every week I read your prayer requests. Every week. And every week someone needs to be delivered. Last week it was cancer. Someone wanted to be delivered from cancer. And then there was the time that someone needed to be delivered from an abusive work situation, an abusive boss. And then there was the time it was an abusive spouse, an abusive parent, someone who needed to be delivered from financial peril, 
from the slavery of indebtedness. Someone needed deliverance from grief, from death. I mean, it's been a year since he died. It's been a year since the accident. It's been a year since the diagnosis. Someone thought they'd be through it by now, but no. No, they still need to be delivered. Someone needs to be delivered from an addiction, a dysfunctional relationship. Someone needs to be delivered from a guilty conscience, from a past you cannot change. Anybody need to be delivered today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Exodus chapter 1 tells about a people in need of deliverance. Israel, once welcomed guests in Egypt. There were about 70 when they came. Joseph, the son of Jacob, had been kidnapped by his brothers, sold and sent to Egypt. And this Joseph, through the hand of God, became prime minister of Egypt and steered that country through a season of prosperity and austerity. And the seven-year famine was when Joseph brought his father out of Canaan and into Egypt. And, and they thrived in Egypt as ranchers and shepherds. And Genesis chapter 47, 6 says, they settled in the best land, Goshen. The Pharaoh then said, put your shepherds in charge of my flocks. And, and they flourished, and the family flourished, and the nation flourished, and the flocks flourished. And the 70 became this significant size that verse 7 in chapter 1 really doesn't give us a number. It just gives us a cascading series of verbs. They were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew increasingly strong, and the land was filled with them. You know, that's Genesis language, you know. Be fruitful and multiply. That's what's going on here. The family of Jacob flourished and Egypt flourished and the flocks flourished. I mean, it's Genesis. And then verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, meaning he didn't acknowledge Joseph. It wasn't a matter of ignorance, rather acknowledgement. This new king didn't care that Joseph had served Egypt and didn't care that Joseph had saved Egypt and didn't care that Israel was a blessing to Egypt. He didn't care that they had kept his own flocks. He didn't care about the flourishing. He's the new king. He has power. He's not afraid to use it. He wants to keep it and hoard it, leverage it. And so in verse 10, he just worries himself into a paranoia of what-ifs. What if they were to keep on multiplying? And what if our enemies were to attack? And what if the Hebrews were to join them? And what if they were to fight against us? Never mind, they're shepherds, not soldiers. Well, then they would be able to escape from the land. Escape? Why would next-door neighbors need to escape? I live in the Clark Park neighborhood here in town. Nobody ever escapes Clark Park. I mean, from these absurd hypotheticals, 
this paranoid king issues three decrees of state-sponsored persecution. First, he conscripts the Hebrews into back-breaking labor, hard service, mortar and brick, building store cities, doing all kinds of field work. Uh, interestingly, there's an ancient Near Eastern document um, in a book edited by a scholar named James Pritchard. This ancient Near Eastern document talks about a brutal condition like what we read in Exodus 1. Listen to this. He is dirtier than vines or pigs from treading under his mud. His clothes are stiff with clay. His leather belt is going to ruin. Entering into the wind, he's miserable. His sides ache since he must be outside in the treacherous wind. His arms are destroyed with technical work. What he eats is the bread of his fingers, and he washes uh, only once a season. He is simply wretched through and through. That's, that's verses 13 and 14 which literally say, I've got them up on the screen here. So they made the people serve with rigor and made their lives bitter with backbreaking service in mortar and brick and with every kind of service in the field, with every kind of service, they made them serve with rigor. Key word, serve, service. That's what's going on. This excessive repetition reveals the intensity of their persecution and with these words prompts the question, whom will you serve, especially in times of oppression? Who is your God? Once neighbors, Israel has now been othered, and, st and still they multiplied, which led to Pharaoh's second decree. He orders the Hebrew midwives to kill the, the newborn boys. But even midwives know right from wrong. And human life is sacred. Babies, no less. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do what the king said, which, of course, set up a confrontation because the king's going to summon them to his throne. This is exactly what happened. I ordered you to kill the baby boys. Well, why have you done this and let the male children live? What are they going to say? We see their names, these midwives' names, Shifra and Pua, verse 15. How will they respond to this shrewd, crafty king? What will they say? Brought before his presence. Your Highness, they're Hebrews. I mean, the Egyptian mothers. I mean, Egyptian mothers, Your Highness. I mean, Egyptian mothers, they have Google calendars and schedules and Excel spreadsheets, and they're very prompt and predictable, and their on-time delivery is perfect. But, but these Hebrew women, I mean, they're Hebrew women. I mean, who knows? They breathe like rabbits, and when it's time to deliver, it's like popcorn. Boom! They're out. It's done. We can't keep up. We can't keep up. Right? We can't keep up. No, we can't keep up. We can't keep up. And what does this shrewd, crafty king say? Nothing. No response. Shifra and Pua are just... Okay. 
I mean, don't miss the significance of this. Two Hebrew women silence is e Egypt's king. More on that later. So Pharaoh goes back to his, the drawing board with decree number three. He sanctions outright murder. You see a baby boy, throw him in the Nile. Anybody. And if the God of the Nile wants them alive, he'll save them. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This guy's dirty. He's just dirty. I mean, like the crafty serpent in Genesis 3, worse than the killer Cain in Genesis 4. I mean, this Pharaoh, I mean, he, he saw himself as a god. Uh, and that was his culture, the Egyptian culture, one of the most religious cultures in the ancient world. And, and on top of all this, the Pharaohs fashioned themselves as gods. And when a man thinks himself as God, chaos ensues. That's Exodus 1, chaos. And at the height of chaos, at the summit of Pharaoh's lunacy, the worst possible moment, a baby is born. Chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, fine, good, good child, when she saw, that's Genesis talk there, as God looked at creation and saw that it was good. There's Genesis talk all going on here. And Oh, he was a good child. And this mother is frantic because she has to hide him. And after three months, she can't hide him anymore. There's no more hiding. And so in chapter 2, verse 3, she prepares a basket and she waterproofs the basket. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of the bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She puts the child in it. And the only way out is through water. The only way out. And so she, she put her son in the basket. How helpless did that feel? And, and she sends the baby's sister to follow and track the basket for help. Uh, and she, I mean, she's just trying to buy time. She doesn't even know what for. And then the, uh, the unimaginable happens. That little ark floats its way to the daughter of Pharaoh who is bathing in the river, the daughter of Pharaoh, the daughter of the man who has issued the death decree, and she sees the basket, and it's a Hebrew baby boy. What's going to happen now? Verse 6, she saw the child. The baby was crying. Ah, oh, can you just sigh? She took pity on him. Not all of Pharaoh's family is crazy. 
is one of the Hebrews' children. And then just out of nowhere, it's almost like a melodrama, right? Moses' sister appears. Well, shall I get a Hebrew wet nurse for you? Oh, you know one. Yes, ma'am. The, 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 and the baby's mother is hired to rear him. You can't make this up. And Pharaoh's daughter names the baby Moses. I drew him out of the water. Don't you see? Moses' own deliverance through water is a sign of what's to come. What do we learn here? This is rich. Well, here's the idea. In the soil of despair, in the soil of despair, God sows a seed of deliverance. There. God, God's specialty is in the worst possible moments. That's when he works best, when we see it as the worst. In the soil of despair, God sows a seed of deliverance. I can't help but think of what the Apostle Paul once said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. In the soil of despair, God sows a seed of deliverance. Exodus opens with the soil of despair. One man is bent on exterminating the people of God. It's personal, it's pointed, it affects people, and those people have names, Shifra and Pua. The, the, the Bible never puts makeup on suffering. The Bible is honest enough to show us the gritty, gutsy drama of human despair and suffering. One scholar put it this way, Scripture never looks down on the sufferer. Scripture never mocks his pain, never turns a deaf ear to his cries, and never condemns the sufferer for the sufferer's struggle. I'll tell you what else we learn from the soil of despair, and it's this. The soil of despair causes us to question our assumptions about suffering. And here's what I mean by this. You know, my story is that when I found out that I had cancer, I, you know, I spent a little bit of time, frankly, with the question, well, why me? What did I do to deserve this? And by God's grace, I just spent a little bit of time there because I didn't find those questions to be very helpful at all. What I found helpful was to remember and to preach to myself over and over and over the message of Romans chapter 8, which is this. Creation's bondage to corruption is a bondage that causes a groaning. Creation's 
Bondage to corruption is a corruption that causes a groaning. Since Genesis chapter 3, this world has been groaning. Sinful, broken, fallen world. And part of our frustration about suffering comes from the assumption that somehow we're going to get a buy. Somehow it's, it's going to skirt to the south of us or it's going to go to the north of us and that it won't disrupt our schedule. And if I think for one minute that I'm going to escape getting splashed on by the brokenness of this world, well, that's just naive. We've talked about the word total depravity and what we've said concerning total depravity is not that you are as sinful as you can possibly be. That's not the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity says that there's not one corner, there's not one crevice of life but hasn't been corrupted by sin. So I'm not being singled out. I'm not the first person to get sick and I won't be the last person either. And what has happened to me is replayed on a regular basis in a world that's been corrupted by sin. I'm going to say this as carefully and pastorally as I possibly can, but I'm going to say it. Tsunamis kill thousands. Famines happen. Wars rage. Governments are corrupt. People steal. Spouses abuse and cheat. Brothers kill brothers in grocery store parking lots. Children are abused instead of protected. Gender confusion occurs. Drugs cause addiction. Gossip poisons reputations. And monetary greed makes people crazy. It's a sinful, broken, fallen world. Now, what will our response be to that? Whom will we serve? Look to the midwives. Look to Moses' mother, Moses' sister. The heroes of Exodus 1 and 2 aren't the boys. They're the fierce women. There's a holy fear. And, and, and this fear of the Lord they had in their hearts was it's not a terror-stricken feeling as much as a way of life, a life of trust, a life of loyalty to the one true God. Their fear of God defeated their fear of Pharaoh. You fight fear with fear. They weaponized their fear of God to defeat the fear of Pharaoh. You fight fear with a better fear. And that's why Psalm 3411 says, Come, children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then Psalm 3419 says, Many are the affliction of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Exodus is not a deliverance unto personal independence. Rather, it is the deliverance from my dependency of one master to a better master. And these midwives, Shifra and Pua, they're named. 
Their names memorialize them in the pages of Holy Scripture. What's Pharaoh's name? You won't find it, will you? That's no accident. That's intentional. The anonymity of Egypt's king is set against two named Hebrew women. We know their names before we know the name of the baby. These women who went on record in declaring their allegiance and by their actions, they proved that they had already left Egypt even before the Exodus. And more importantly, by their actions, they proved that they had gotten Egypt out of them. And that's the challenge of Exodus. Because you see, God's goal is more than delivering Israel out of Egypt. He wants to get Egypt out of Israel. Acts 7.39, the preacher Stephen retells the Exodus. And in this startling verse, he says, in their hearts, the Israelites turned back to Egypt. Now, who would do that? Especially in the context of verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 1. Who would do that? Well, people do that. People who get used to slavery, that's all they know. In fact, we then start bargaining with God for partial deliverances, deal-making where we try to negotiate with God, settling for a tolerable deliverance. As, as long as it looks like this, God, I'll follow you. That's slave talk. You're not a slave. You're a child of God. Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Israel is my firstborn son. In the soil of despair, God sows a seed of deliverance. Just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not there. You know what the first word is in the entire book of Exodus? You won't find it in most English versions. It's omitted from there. It's a very important word. It's a word that makes English teachers cringe. You know this? It's the word, here it is. It's the word, and... And, and, so, so from chapter 1, verse 1, we're put on notice that what we're about to read belongs to a grand narrative. It's like the book of Acts following up to the gospel of Luke. The first nine words of Exodus duplicate Genesis 46, 8. These are the names of the sons of Israel. Exodus has to be read in the light of what's gone on before. God is at work creating a people for himself so that through these people, the entire world would be blessed. He wants Israel to be to the world what Adam and Eve were to Eden, his priests, his representatives. And he's called his people to be a kingdom of priests. And that through their lives, the world would know that he lives and he rules as the one true God. And so here, 
in Egypt, outside the promised land, the world is being remade. God is building a people. He's busy working through the silence, multiplying his people from Jacob, multiplying them through backbreaking labor, multiplying them through faithful midwives, multiplying in spite of this genocidal Pharaoh. Verse 22, the worst time to have a baby, not for God. The mother places Moses in an ark. That's the same word as Noah's ark. Moses is drawn from the water to live in the palace of the very king who wants him dead. And he attends Egypt's version of Harvard on a royal scholarship for in Acts 7.22, this same Stephen I spoke of earlier said, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. Oh, God may be silent, but he's not absent. And he is preparing his deliverer in his time, educating him, sifting him, testing him, and one day, God, through Moses, will defeat this anti-God, Pharaoh, through water, water of the Nile, which killed the Hebrew boys, will one day be the water of the Red Sea, which will swallow Pharaoh's army whole. And all of this, God is doing, and his name's hardly mentioned. Yet his fingerprints are everywhere. If we look... If we look, we will see God takes a place of death, the Nile, and he turns it into deliverance for life. Now, where have we heard that before? So a scholar, the late Alec Motyer, once posed this scenario. He said, if you asked an Israelite, who are you? That Israelite would say, well, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb. Our mediator led us out and we crossed over and now we're on our way to the promised land. And we're not there yet, but he's given us his law to make us a community. He's given us the tabernacle because you're going to have to live by grace and forgiveness. And his presence is in our midst and he's going to stay with us until we get home. That's who I am. And then Alex Motyer said, you know what? That's exactly what a Christian can say word for word. Exodus is not just how God liberates a particular oppressed people. It's how God brings salvation to all. Through Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed. God's grand plan. Here's God's grand plan. Creation to new creation by means of deliverance. And all of the scripture is, is about God leading us back home. And so trust him. Cooperate with him. Influencing your world for Christ need not come from the halls of power. Like these ladies, you can affect change from the labor and delivery department. Trust him, even when you don't understand him. Because just because you can't see God doesn't mean he's not there. 
and trust him patiently, Hebrews 6, uh, 12, encourages us, exhorts us, be not sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises of God. And know this, Jesus is God's yes to every one of his promises. Jesus is the true Moses. For while Moses served God, Jesus is the Son of God. While Moses told Israel to seek protection from the blood of the Lamb, Jesus is that Lamb. While Moses gave the law, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the giver of grace. And while Moses gave Israel the tabernacle, Jesus tabernacled among us and by his spirit fills us so that we might be his tabernacle, mediating his presence and love so that our world would know he is alive and he is reigning and ruling. And he wants all to come to him. This Jesus, who spoke of his exodus through the cross, who in the soil of crucified despair sowed the seed of salvation, and in rising from death, Jesus proved the reality of Romans 8. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Amen? So, so, so with that, let me finish that prayer I interrupted. <laughs> Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, amen. amen.